Uh, if you would, grab your Bible and let's open to Esther chapter 8. Esther chapter 8. We are getting dangerously close to the end of this book. Esther 8. There are, as I think about the book of Esther, there are some things that seem uh, impossible to us. Things in life, stories we hear, things we read, and we just think, can that even be real? Like, is that even possible? Um, Like one of my favorite Guinness world record holders, he can fit a whole soda can in his mouth. And you're like, is that even real? I I just brought a picture. It is real. Uh, He can actually do that. His mouth is crazy large. Uh, Supposedly, he can put a whole head in his mouth. I'm not sure if that's like a baby-sized head or an adult head or whatever, but uh, it turns out he's got a a really big mouth. But Guinness World Records, it's a great kind of go-to for learning about impossible things and not just things that seem impossible, but also like really, really dumb. Like what seems impossible is that anybody would actually care about these kinds of records. Like this next one, um, how many snails can you fit on your head? Like, I don't know why that's a record. It just seems weird. Uh, No surprise, this is an 11-year-old. He was able to break a record. He put 43 snails on his face. Uh, Or this guy, he can crush 80 eggs with his head in a minute. Like, It's not the best picture, but if you look close, he's got like a huge permanent welt on his forehead because that's where he breaks the eggs. Uh, Another guy, I'm glad we've eaten ketchup and M&Ms this morning because we're all nauseous already. Uh, This guy has the record for longest ear hair, which, (laughs) all right, change it. I don't want to see it anymore. It's gross, right? I don't know why that's a record. Um, there are other records that seem impossible that anyone would care about them. There's a record for how high a guinea pig can jump, a record for longest FaceTime call, 88 hours, 53 minutes, in case you're curious. I believe one of you could beat it. Uh, But impossible stories. Not just dumb ones, but things we hear that are impossible, like uh, a man divorced his wife for being too ugly, and he won. A, a girl's bungee cord snapped over a crocodile-infested waters, and she survived both. One guy was cleaning his spearfishing gun and shot himself in the head on accident, and he's totally fine. Like, impossible stories. We hear these things, and we think, how could this be? And not just the weird ones, but stories like that, like guys getting struck by lightning multiple times, and living. Uh, Moms pushing cars off of their children. Young girls pushing bears out of their backyard to save their dogs. We hear these kinds of stories, and we think these are just so impossible, and they remind us of what normally doesn't happen. They remind us of things that, like, shouldn't happen, things that aren't normal, things that just don't happen, not the normal outcome, not the normal expectation. The story of Esther is a lot like those stories. Kind of seems impossible. All the things that are happening. Kind of wonder about it. By human standards, it just seems like, how could this be? 
the whole thing takes place in the Persian Empire, and it's, it's a dangerous place to live. It's ruled by a king who's far too powerful, and he has an anger management problem. And it's doubly dangerous if you're a Jew, which kind of our two key uh, actors in this story, our two key characters are both Jews. There are Jews living in a world that has just very little concern for them. As we've read this story and studied it, we've learned about King Xerxes or Ahasuerus. The the Bible uses this other name for him. Same guy. And he's this dangerous king. And even his right-hand man is kind of a dangerous guy too. His name was Haman. And he had a big problem with the Jews, a, a fight that went back generations and generations and generations for him. It was in his family. It was in his blood to be against the Jews. And so when he picks this fight with not just Mordecai or Esther, but with all the Jews, we're not really surprised. And he's got the power to do it. He he declares this edict to sentence them all to death. And it was signed by the king, and it was sealed with his signet ring. And it's the kind of situation that is impossible to get out of. It's impossible to get out of. And this kingdom, every law, every decree declared by the king or, or signed with his signet ring, it's irreversible. So as we near the end of our story, we, we, we only have like two chapters and like two more verses left. The point is there's still a huge problem, a huge problem There's been a little bit of reversal in the story already. We learned that two weeks ago. Haman is now dead, and that's like a good thing. Esther had risked her life, and she's still alive. That's pretty great. Her cousin Mordecai was, looks like he was about to have his lights put out, and and he made it. He's still alive. But this decree of Haman, it, it, it still exists, it's still in play. Why? Because no law in this empire can just be done away with. It can't be overturned. There is still this impossible situation that's lingering. All the Jews are scheduled to be put to death on the 13th day of the month of Adar, which is like our December. So chapter by chapter, we've studied this book and We've had to bring in truths that we know about God from other parts of the Bible because Esther doesn't mention God. Esther doesn't tell us what God is doing. We have no verses in this whole book that say, here's what God is up to. But this lack of mentioning God doesn't mean that God's not in the story. It doesn't mean that God's not here. Of of course he's in this story of Esther. Just like our lives, even though we can't see him, even though we can't know what he's doing, even though we can't totally always understand, it's, it's still the same truth. We know who God is, and we know what God desires to do. He's still God. So we brought these truths in. Chapter 1, power doesn't belong to some corrupt king, but it belongs to God. Chapter 2, God uses flawed people. Chapter 3, God works all things for good. Chapter 4, God uses trials to strengthen us. And 
Chapter five, God has a good plan for your life and it begins with salvation. And then two weeks ago, we looked at chapter six and seven together and we let Proverbs three kind of give us some help that when we trust in the Lord, we can, we can totally rely on him for our future. We can know that God takes that crooked path of our life and he makes it stick straight. That's this great truth that we need. And this morning, our big idea is another truth borrowed from Mark chapter 10, verse 27. It's a short big idea, and it's, I think it's pretty helpful, and it's this. Nothing is impossible with God. Nothing is impossible with God. It's a long chapter, but I want to read it kind of in its entirety, just so we can kind of get the vibe of it, okay? Esther chapter 8, verse 1, God's word says, On that day, King Ahasuerus gave the house of Haman, the enemy of the Jews, to Queen Esther. And Mordecai came before the king, for Esther had disclosed what he was to her. The king took off his signet ring, which he had taken away from Haman, and he gave it to Mordecai. Esther set Mordecai over the house of Haman. Then Esther spoke again to the king, fell at his feet, wept, and implored him to avert the evil scheme of Haman the Agagite and his plot which he had devised against the Jews. The king extended the golden scepter to Esther, so Esther arose and stood before the king. Then she said, if it pleases the king and if I have found favor before him and the matter seems proper to the king and I am pleasing in his sight, let it be written to revoke the letters devised by Haman, the son of Hamadatha, the Agagai, which he wrote to destroy the Jews who are, who are in all the king's provinces." How can I endure to see the calamity which will befall my people? And how can I endure to see the destruction of my kindred? So King Ahasuerus said to Queen Esther and to Mordecai the Jew, Behold, I've given the house of Haman to Esther, and him they've hanged on the gallows because he stretched out his hand against the Jews. Now you write to the Jews as you see fit in the king's name. And seal it with the king's signet ring. For a decree which is written in the name of the king and sealed with the king's signet ring may not be revoked. So the king's scribes were called at that time in the third month, the month Savan, and on the 23rd day, and it was written according to all that Mordecai commanded to the Jews, the satraps, the governors, the princes, and the of the provinces which extended from India to Ethiopia, 127 provinces, to everyone according to its script, to every people according to their language, as well as to the Jews according to their script and their language. He wrote in the name of King Ahasuerus, and he sealed it with the king's signet ring, and he sent letters by couriers on horses riding on steeds sired by the royal stud. In them, the king granted the Jews who were in each and every city the right to assemble and to defend their lives, to destroy, to kill, and to annihilate the entire army of any people or province which might attack them, including children and women, and to plunder their spoil. On one day, in all the provinces of King Ahasuerus, the 13th day of the 12th month, that is the month Adar. 
A copy of the edict uh, to be issued as law in each and every province was published to all the peoples so that the Jews would be ready for this day to avenge themselves on their enemies. The couriers hastened and impelled by the king's command went out riding on the royal steeds and the decree was given out at the citadel in Susa. And Mordecai went out from the presence of the king in royal robes of blue and white with a large crown of gold and a garment of fine linen and purple. And the city of Susa shouted and rejoiced for the Jews there For the Jews, there was light and gladness and joy and honor in each and every province and in each and every city. Wherever the king's commandment and his decree arrived, there was gladness and joy for the Jews, a feast and a holiday. And many among the peoples of the land became Jews for the dread or the fear of the Jews had fallen on them. Why is nothing impossible with God? There's a a lot of ways we could split this chapter up. Uh, Let's look first at this. Uh, Only God is ahead of the problem. That's what I want to call the first eight verses. Only God is ahead of the problem. God had been working behind the scenes in chapter 6 and 7, Haman's now been dealt with. Chapter 7 ended in this kind of incredible demonstration of of God's ability to sort out the lives of both Esther and Mordecai. He shows his power. He shows his ability to make paths straight. This has to be God. Only God can have this kind of timing, uh, this kind of split-second timing that we saw in chapters 6 and 7. All of those events happened at precisely the right time to to yield this kind of outcome. But this ending of chapter 7, again, it's not enough. It's not enough. Haman is dead, but the threat remains, and it's a big problem. Let's look at verses 1 and 2 for just a, a moment. Personally, Esther is okay. She'd risked her life. She's still breathing. And not only is she alive, but, but she's doing well. The, the king gave her charge over Haman's estate. And Esther is able to tell the king who her cousin is, who Mordecai really is to her. He's a Jew. He's family. And Mordecai is supposed to be dead, but he isn't. He lives and, and he's promoted to this position that was once held by Haman. He's finally given the honor that we thought he was going to get way back in chapter 3. And, and, and Mordecai now wears the signet ring. He's just totally replaced Haman. He's able to have this kind of power and authority. And Esther even gives him charge over Haman's house. So chapter 8 begins with almost this fairy tale ending. It's so close to, to happily ever after. But... We can't forget about this edict that Haman wrote. The threat is still there. The king had already asked Esther three separate times, what do you want? He kind of does it in this strange way. He says, what's your wish and what's your request? And finally in chapter 7, Esther kind of reveals her answer to those questions. Her wish, she asked for her own life, and her request is, 
She asked for the lives of her people. Her wish had been granted. She was still alive and she's doing well, but her request is still unfulfilled because there's a problem with that request. The problem facing God's people is is not gone because this is the law of the land. The king's edict is impossible to undo. It's impossible to overturn. Her people are still going to be executed. We learn in verse 1 that this is the same day, but it's not the same minute. There's a break. Haman is dead, and the lawyers of the king and the sort of like the chief staff, they have to figure all this out, how to give the sort of the estate of Haman to Esther, and they have to get the signet ring back, and you know, Mordecai is now going to have that, and some time has passed here. And if you remember from two weeks ago, the king was pretty mad. And it isn't until he sees Haman's dead body that he finally starts to calm down. So he's chilled out a little bit. He's back in his, on his throne or in his royal room. And now we come to verse 3. And it's just such a short sentence, and we can kind of miss it. It says, Esther spoke again to the king. That word again, it's not an extension of chapter 7. We have to go all the way back to chapter 5. That word again means that Esther, once again, has to stick her neck out to talk to the king. She's risking her life unannounced, coming into the king's presence. And anybody who did that, there was only one result, death. You just don't barge into the king's presence unless he extends the golden scepter. Chapter 5, it has to be repeated. And all the emotions and all the danger that goes with it, the king still has to do that or else Esther is going to be breathing her last. But verse 4 shows us not to fear. He does spare her life one more time. There's just a lot in that word again. And I think as we think about Esther, I don't want to make too much of this, but it's, it's there. She could have thought, I'm, I'm good. This has all worked out for me personally. I'm fine. I'm alive. The people I love most are, are alive. And not only are we alive, but we're doing well. My cousin has the signet ring of the king. We're in charge of this I think, very profitable estate. She could have thought, I'm good. I'm so good. Let someone else deal with this. Why do I have to risk my life again? Can't somebody else do this for the Jews? The king, I know personally, he's a hothead, and I'm I'm potentially pushing him to a place that I'm going to be in real danger. You know, king, sorry, could I just ask for one more thing? I know you've been gracious and it's been a long day, but just this one thing about your law, can we just undo that? But she doesn't. She doesn't think that. She doesn't say, isn't it enough? I'm not saying that Esther is the the perfect hero for us to pattern our lives after. I'm not, but, but she does show us some perseverance and humility. She does give us a glimpse of, of putting others in front of herself. I think that's so important. We can learn a lot from her, not just seeing our needs and our life and our comfort and how good things are for us, but 
but caring about other people as well. I know it's been a lot of weeks, but I think this is still an effect of what we, what we learned about how that trial strengthened her, how that trial, it, it grew her, and it helped her to do what the Lord had for her in her life. It emboldened her to seek first the kingdom of God, not the kingdom of Esther. And she does this, and it's a good reminder, even for young Christians, so important to put others first. Philippians 2 says, In humility, count others more important than yourself. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also the interests of others. And Esther models that well. Well, back to our story. Esther is granted life. The gold scepter is extended. And we get to read of her request. And, and she is... She is asking for the impossible. Once the law is written, it's fixed. Haman's edict, it had the authority of the king. It was sealed with the ring, but she pleads with the king to sort of lift this edict. She's asking for the impossible. Verse 7 and 8, she gets it, although not the way we expect. The, the king doesn't just lift the decree, but there is a way because of verse Two, the ring had already been given to Mordecai. Mordecai's elevation, Mordecai, not Haman, now has the power to to do whatever he wants, and it'll carry the weight of the king. Now another way can be found. Uh, Verse 8, the king says, write whatever you want concerning your people. Just write as you please. But don't forget, do it in the name of the king. Seal it with the ring. Why? Because then it's irreversible. Then no one can touch it. It can't be revoked. Seal it with my ring. So what seems so impossible is is now possible. Esther, this imperfect person, emboldened by trial, trusting God to make her path straight. She asks for the impossible. And what do we find? This little action in verse 2, God had already figured it out. You see that? God was way out in front of the trouble. He had already arranged for this solution. Mordecai already had the ring. He, could, he, could already, he already had what he needed to fix this problem. It's so encouraging to me, and it should be to you as well. By, by the time that we see the trouble, by the time that the trouble sort of hits our radar, guess what? God's already been there. He's there already. And as we learn from this sort of example, the answer to the problem is it's already in the works. God makes the impossible now possible. It's such an easy Fix to this request. Just write a new edict, whatever you want on behalf of the Jews, and seal it with my ring. God had it all worked out. Why is nothing impossible with God? I think we see that because only God is ahead of the problem. And I want to show you this kind of second part. Number two, only God can completely reverse the impossible. Only God can completely reverse the irreversible, or whatever word you want to use there. But, 
But verse 9, Mordecai gives this new edict, and what was once the problem now becomes the means of salvation. Another edict goes out in the king's name, not reversing the situation, but granting the Jews to gather and protect themselves. And all of this language, it's kind of boring for us. It felt like it even when I was reading it. But the thing about it is it's so like, important because it's the exact language we've already seen. It's the exact same wording of that first edict from the method of delivery and those same scary words, kill and destroy and annihilate, even children and women and plunder their goods and 13th day of Adar, all that. It's all intentionally the same to show us what kind of power God has to reverse situations. This new edict of Mordecai will be the full reversal of the original edict of Haman. Now, the Jews can defend themselves against this enemy who will attack. It's a pretty incredible result, really. Everything that was against them is now for them. The day of their doom, this 13th of Adar, whatever. It's now a day when, when they can defend themselves. And the description of their death, it says destroy, kill, annihilate. Now it's descriptive of what they can do. And do you remember what chapter 4 said of how the Jews responded? They all put on sackcloth and ashes, especially, especially Mordecai. Look at what it says in verse 15. Now he's wearing these royal robes of blue and white. And chapter 4 said of the people, very specific words. They, they mourned, they were fasting, they were weeping, they were lamenting. They too were in sackcloth and ashes. And now look at Verse 16 of chapter 8, now there is light and gladness and joy and honor. Happiness has overcome them because of this reversal. It's so cool. God does the impossible. He reverses every single detail. Nothing's impossible with God. So, Difficult, I think, for us not to think of our own salvation when we read a story like this. To not think of God still being the same God and his ability to, to reverse things, especially our spiritual state. What God does for his people in the book of Esther, it reminds us that, that this is what God still does for his people today. This is what God does. This is what he can do for you. The, those who have no hope, those who are facing death, those who are dead in their sin, there should be mourning and weeping and fasting and lamenting. There should be like sackcloth and ashes for us when we realize how sinful we are, when we realize there's nothing that we can do about it, nothing we can do to, to overturn God's righteousness or God's holiness. Our sin must be judged. And that can't be stopped. That can't be undone. That's an impossible situation that we face on our own. But God does the impossible. He gives life 
and hope. He brings good news of forgiveness of sin, an edict kind of, if you will, that, that provides another way. The same God takes away darkness and gives light. The same God takes away death and gives life. He, he takes away our dirty rags of sin and gives us royal robes like Mordecai. God doesn't just reverse his law. That's not what he does. He makes the impossible possible by paying the price of sin himself. He sent his son to die for us. An impossible situation we face. But with God, nothing's impossible. God changes absolutely everything. Even the, the example of Christ, uh, of his life, it's such, a, it's such an example for us. When we think about just what the Gospels show us, Jesus heals the sick in an impossible way, the lame and the deaf and the blind, and, and he has power over creation, an impossible kind of power. Walks on water, silences wind, and calms waves. He, he has impossible power over death. When God is in the room, it's all changed. Nothing is impossible. The angels know this, and they, they proclaim this truth in Luke chapter 1, verse 37. Jesus, too, says it when he's speaking of salvation to his disciples from our big idea, Mark 10, 27, Jesus says, with man, it's impossible to save yourself. But with God, all things are possible. Nothing is impossible for God. And that should be enough from this chapter, Esther chapter 8. But it's not. There's actually more. The author just tucks in this one last little sentence as if, we, as if we need it. One more little note from verse 17. Nothing's impossible for God. Why? Well, only God's ahead of the problem. Only God can completely reverse the irreversible or the impossible. And number three, only God brings salvation. I know we don't care about Jewish holidays festivals, but it's telling us here something the Jews still do to this day, the, this holiday that they celebrate. It's called the Feast of Purim. It's all about the story of Esther. And that's kind of what you see there in verse 17. This is how this holiday came to be. But there's more. That last sentence, many from the peoples of the country declared themselves Jews for fear of the Jews had fallen on them. This people didn't just fear the Jews. They feared the God behind the Jews. That was how they lived. That, that was something that they believed in. They thought the gods behind the people gave them their power. And now they see the God of the Jews is no joke. That's why Haman's wife said that weird thing a couple chapters ago. And she's like, you're going up against them? You're toast. She knew how powerful the God of the Jews actually was. And now through this story, so many people in this land see it too. They know God's real and powerful and he's to be feared. And so many people become followers of God this day. They worship God. They follow him. They become Jews. So not only is it possible for God to save his people, but also at the very same time, save a bunch of other people as well. It's Amazing. It's awesome. 
People who don't worship him or don't care about him now worship him and, and follow him. People who were so entrenched in idol worship and just consumed with their own wickedness, they now follow God. They live for God. And people who, who were living under this kingship of Xerxes, this, this man who thought he was a god, now they have a king who is much more powerful, much bigger, much greater. Their king now can do the impossible. Chapter 8, is, it's jam-packed. There's so much here. From kind of what we see in Esther to, to how God was in front of the problem, to how he reverses it, to even how he saves all these other people. We look at it and we, we think, man, this kind of seems impossible. And from our perspective, it is. But not for God. The same God who can do all this, young people, is the same God who makes a way for you still today. The same God who does this, who, who will judge you for your sin, has done the impossible. He's, he sent his son to pay for it. He sent his son to die for you, and he calls you to believe and to repent. I know you've heard me say, it's such a good reminder. We can't save ourselves on our own. There's nothing we can do. Just like Esther, we face an impossible situation. But just like Esther, we can trust God with the impossible. Why? Because nothing is impossible for God. Let me pray for you. Heavenly Father, thank you so much for this truth. Help us to know it and to love it. Lord, there is nothing impossible for you. You are a, a great God, a God who can do whatever he desires, and, and your desires are always good. They're always right, and they're, they're always perfect. Lord, give faith to these students to believe, to know that there is, is just no one like you, no one to tell you no or or that you can't do something. Help us to see this, to, to understand that our, our eternity is fixed because of our sin and that there's nothing that we can do to fix it. It's, it's an impossible situation. God, but thank you for being a God who saves, a God who does the impossible. Pray that you would grant salvation this morning to these students. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.